this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. That was the sounds I heard off the Santa Catalina Bridge here in Providencia as the residents of Providencia celebrated a holiday whose name I'm not sure about. So this is Linus Wilson, and the slow boat is still here in Providencia, Colombia, in the middle of the Southwest Caribbean Sea. We're waiting here for a favorable weather window and also enjoying all that Providencia has to offer. I think if you look, listen to the Tate McDaniel interview in episode 3 about Providencia, he said it was he and Danny's favorite place and they stayed until the last day of their visa here. And it's obvious why they did. You know, the living is easy, the Wi-Fi is free... There are three grocery stores within close walking distance of the dinghy dock. Uh, there's beautiful snorkeling. There's wonderful hikes. Me and Stevie hiked up El Pico, the tallest peak, which is about 1,200 feet. And there was just a marvelous trail that was made uh, as part of a national park. You really couldn't get lost. Uh, it was the kind of quality you'd expect from a national park in the States. I hike some trails in Honolulu, Hawaii that I thought were worse marked and uh, it was just a tremendous view. Providencia is a volcanic island I believe and uh, it has several peaks that are about the same height and they're all very close together because it's a relatively small island. We drove around the island and it was about 20 kilometers we came back with some just beautiful pictures uh, from El Pico. We got uh, back from um, Crab Key on Sunday. We had a, a fun time there snorkeling. It's about a two miles from the anchorage, so most people in their dinghies will find that a pretty easy dinghy ride out there. We were the only dinghy out there despite the 12 boats in the harbor. And I don't think we've come across another boater that's visited there yet. Uh, but maybe we've not talked to enough people. Uh, it's very popular among the locals. they got a tiki bar, and they've got a nice hike up the hill there, and uh, beautiful views, and there are great reefs all around. You know, there's just so much uh, unexplored here, and it's not crowded and not expensive. It's just uh, a refreshing place to be. You know, I do think tourism's definitely the main industry here, but, you know, most of the tourists are coming from mainland Colombia, not from other parts of the world uh, like you might see in the Eastern Caribbean or the Bahamas. I mentioned that we, you know, on our passage up here, we had a couple issues. Uh, one was uh, the about 400 miles in the passage. Uh, one of the the upper shrouds was very loose on the leeward side. 
still haven't Facebooked that yet, uh, but I, I think I do know part of the cause was the, you know, the, the upper shrouds were a little loose. So one of the things I've found is that typically uh, the, the rig is out of tune, and I actually tuned the rig earlier this year. I, I find that uh, yards often don't do a very good job of retuning the rig or not very scientific about it. And thankfully with Island Packet, they actually have uh, rig tuning uh, suggestions. So on ours, uh, the, uh, the upper shrouds are supposed to be 35 on a loose gauge, and that's what it's called is a loose gauge. That's the proper name for the, the thing you'll buy at a marine chandlery. And it was at 30 on both sides. The rest of the shrouds and the backstays were pretty much right on tune, but maybe that upper shroud was a little bit loose. And uh, certainly I'd never uh, sailed uh, 400 miles with full sail before. So that that's something pretty easy to fix. You know, the other issue that came up on the passage was we kind of saw some evidence of maybe what we now realize to be electrical charge going through the lifeline. So we have the lifeline solar and we have uh, really old lifelines uh, that are definitely, definitely were rusted before the passage and they've got, you know, the plastic is cracking. And, you know, stupidly, I attached the lifeline solar panels with stainless steel attachments thinking they would be stronger but I think with all the salt water and we had them up for nine months but the first time we ever found any evidence that any charge was leaking out uh, was really about the same day that I, I saw the the loose shroud and so the I saw kind of a spark or a yellow light coming from where the lifelines touched uh, one of the uh, lower shrouds. So I taped that and uh, got rid of that kind of spark, but there was really accelerated rusting in a lot of places. After me and Stevie got kind of low-level shocks when we did our kind of sh showers, because we'll like swim and then uh, soap up and then uh, rinse off in the cockpit when we're at anchor to conserve water. Uh, we got a few shocks and you know that finally got the the wheels turning that you know there's charge moving through the lifelines i at first i thought it was an electrical reaction and i'd never seen any type of rusting like that in the whole bahamas trip for example so it's clear that you know we had to stop using the lifeline solar panels uh, until uh, we can replace those lifelines so we're going to go with dyneema which is a, a, a type of rope that's stronger than steel, we'll replace them with Dyneema lifelines once we get to Panama. So that's the big issue. But, of course, that means that you don't, you don't have as much solar. And, and the last podcast, I boy, I used the inverter a lot. On, <laughs> and so I had to use the generator a lot to the Honda generator to keep the batteries up once we lost the lifeline solar and we lost uh, and I use the inverter a lot 
and so we've got the batteries back topped up using the generator a lot and one of the bonuses was that we uh, I finally got the air conditioner working so one of the things that we have a marine air air conditioner and one of the issues that if you read slow boat to the Bahamas we had with it was whenever we went on kind of a long cruise it was typical that some type of clog would get in the uh, intake or outtake lines for the internal marine air air conditioner and then that you know that would mean that it can't cool and if it can't cool you can't run it and then you then you have to get rid of the clog before you can use it and so uh, it's it's definitely been clogged since the Gulf of Mexico passage to Cuba and uh, we had, had not had the benefit of using that at least when we were in Cayo Largo and had electrical hookups and not until just yesterday uh, did we have it so we've been we've been sweating profusely for oh, about three weeks uh, maybe more and it was nice to have a little bit of 70 degrees inside now that we're kind of in port and we have access to gasoline and we're running the generator anyways because we probably are under underpowered in terms of solar so that 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 was definitely a bonus so I guess the big projects going forward are to, to take care of that lifeline issue, replace those lifelines, and put new Dyneema that don't conduct electricity. You know, it was a it was a kind of it was a tricky thing to diagnose at first because there was also a lot of rusting, you know, coming from uh, the rub rail and all all the the hardware on the island packet is you know top quality 316 stainless right they're, they're not cutting corners anywhere and the rub rails 316 the bow pulpit is 316 stainless and I'm sure the lifelines were uh, bef you know before they uh, got in such bad shape and that was that was definitely a project I was thinking of doing was replacing the lifelines but I passed on it for other projects and now I regret it but you know hindsight is 2020 and so the uh, it seemed that I couldn't figure out why the rub rail which is not connected to the lifelines would rust so much and then I realized it a couple days ago when I saw that the secondary anchor is touching a stainless steel attachment eye that is used to use for the furling line and that that eye is attached to the bow pulpit which is attached to the the lifelines and that was how the rub rail was electrically connected and, and the, there was definitely rusting on that secondary anchor which is brand new and tremendous rusting on that eye which the uh, furling line goes through uh, which I definitely not seen before so uh, you know it's it's one of those really weird things you don't expect to see don't hear about a lot but that's life on a boat you know, there's always some interesting new thing breaks but we will 
persevere. Well, the adventures on the slow boat seems like child's play when you talk to a guy like Don McIntyre of McIntyre Adventure. Uh, he's definitely an interesting man who we just barely scratched the surface of his adventures. He's probably better known today for organizing the 2018 Golden Globe 50th anniversary race and we are so happy to have an interview with him today. Here it is. This episode is sponsored by Jennifer Clark's Gulfstream. Satellite oceanographer Jennifer Clark and professional meteorologist Dane Clark have over 35 years of experience helping sailors on blue water voyages. Their current charts, crossing waypoints, and personalized weather advice help sailors take advantage of favorable currents and minimize the impact of unfavorable ones. A link to their website, their email address, and their phone number are in the show notes. I'm really interested in the Golden Globe 50th anniversary that you're planning on doing. Yep, sure. Yeah, it's creating waves all over the place right now. It's um, really quite special, so uh, and I'm the first to admit it surprised even me. <laughs> well, you know, I think that race really touched a nerve in a lot of people. The original. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I think you have a... Tr- tremendously interesting background before the you decided to organize the race the the 50th anniversary golden globe yeah sure well, i never really never really grew up you know it's all about having fun and uh, you know following what uh, what looks right you know <laughs> so maybe you could just give me a overview of some of the adventures you've been on So we had three years of fun, four years of fun, 
working in Antarctica. We ended up treasure hunting up here in the Philippines as well, looking for a Spanish galleon. And uh, he found some corrugated iron, but it was a bucket load of fun. So uh, then uh, we, we got hooked up with some terrorists up there. We had some uh, people from the NPA come onto the ship with trying to get on the ship anyway with AK-47s and so on, and we thought we need something different. So uh, we took up rally car racing and um, did pretty well with that for a few years in, in uh, Australia and New Zealand. And then I always wanted to fly around Australia, but the first guys to fly around were uh, a guy called McIntyre and Goebbels, no relative, but it always struck me from when I was a kid. So um, what happened was I, I decided to do it in a gyrocopter. Uh, which I said I'd never fly. For 23 years, I said I'd never fly a gyro because they're too dangerous, but I found a really good German one and uh, ended up doing a world-first uh, flight around Australia in a, in a gyrocopter. Which what, really what is a gyrocopter? A gyrocopter, it's, it's like most people would say it's like a little helicopter, but basically it's a two-seat ultralight, open cockpit. It has a pusher propeller at the back, and then it has what looks like rotor blades from a helicopter at the top, but they're free-spinning. They just fly in the wind by themselves, and that becomes the wing surface. So as the pusher prop pushes you forward, that rotor at the top starts turning and creates the more or less the lift. So they're very safe if you get a good one. You know, there's a lot of people get killed in them because they're a lot of homemade ones with, with car engines and things like that. But this German one is just taking over the world. It's a company called Auto Gyro in Germany. They're making a couple of day now. They've got thousands of them flying all around the world. They're the only gyrocopter I would ever fly, and it's the best flying machine I've ever had in my life. I've owned helicopters and planes and flown gliders and all sorts of things, but the gyrocopter, fantastic. It's like a motorcycle in the sky, three-dimensional motorbike. It's just incredible. So, so that was pretty cool. And uh, then uh, after that, I'd been following a dream to... You know, there's two voyages that are considered to be the, the toughest ocean open boat voyages in the world. One of them is um, William Bly in the, from the Mutiny on the Bounty. He did about 4,000 miles across the Pacific. And the other one is um, uh, Shackleton in, uh, in the James Cairn from Elephant Island to South Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I wondered about that. So I decided in the end, a bit of a long story, I'm going to cut it short. I got myself a, uh, an open whale boat basically a rowboat and me and three other guys we, we sailed at 4,000 miles across the Pacific from Tonga to Kapang retracing Bly's voyage and only taking the things that he had so uh, we had no uh, well basically two weeks worth of water virtually no food no toilet paper no charts no GPS no nothing you know we just went with nothing and it was an incredible adventure I, I lost 18 kilos during the course of the voyage uh, we, I, we nearly died on one occasion uh, you know, it, was, it was amazing it's a whole story in itself but one of the best adventures I've ever done you know, it was just very simple and pure you know, just a wooden boat with some ropes and sails and, and pretty much nothing else anyway then after that um, I heard about some wrecks in Tonga when I was there preparing to leave on the bounty voyage and so at the end of the bounty boat trip uh, we uh, basically went back to Tonga and we've been sort of treasure hunting there for the last four or five years and uh, had some interesting occasions there. We've got our first uh, 17th century bronze cannon and all sorts of little tricky bits. And uh, we've been very lucky there. We've now got our own island in Tonga called Namuka Iki. And we've just formed a yacht club last year. All we've got at the moment is a flagpole on the island. It's a beautiful tropical uninhabited island. Um, and we'll proceed over the next number of years to build some huts there and the yacht club, uh, a few, few different things. So just remember, Royal Namuka Yacht Club. 
in Tottenham. All right, I'll and, try uh, to visit. And, and then that moves us into the, into the Golden Globe race. I think there's a lot of interesting things there. I think that open boat voyage, maybe you could talk a little bit more. You talked about the Tonga to the Batavia one, uh, tracing yeah, Bly's that, route. Yeah, uh, it was William Bly of mutiny on the bounty. It's very big in European history. Um, you know, it's a very well-documented mutiny, and Fletcher Christian uh, basically put Bly and 18 of his men in an open boat, cast them adrift, and then he went back to... Uh, Tahiti, where the beautiful women were, and then they ended up on Pitcairn Island. And so Bly and his men had to survive for this uh, huge open boat journey. It took 48 days. They crossed to Kapang, and ultimately, uh, uh, you know, their survival, the rescue, uh, you know, they got back to civilization themselves. But it was an amazing adventure, and that's what we wanted to replicate. I wanted to do it, you know, very similar to Bly and go through the privations of what they went through. And at one stage, we were down to nearly half, only about half a litre of water a day. And um, as I said, we starved ourselves. We had virtually no food. You know, we only had a few biscuits morning and evening and, and so on. So, so uh, yeah, that was an amazing adventure. You know, we, we had all sorts of things happen. We, you know, middle of the night, no, no charts, no nothing in the night. It pops up in front of me and nearly end up going over the reef. It's not a pretty sight. I also... Uh, you would think you would want to stop at an island. You would think you'd want to stop, right? If you were at sea for many days, you might want to stop at an island, not really? Well, the problem was we went to, you know, in fact, the, the reason, part of the reason we were on Namukiiki, our island with the Yacht Club, that's where the mutiny took place, okay, just offshore our island. And when they rejected, they went to an island, an active volcano. You know, it's just right out of Jurassic Park, you know, with the flames puffing and big lake in the middle of this, this little island. They got there, took them 22 hours or something, and they stayed there for three days and two nights. And one of their men was killed by the locals, the local Tongans, uh, got him and chopped him up. And so therefore, Bly didn't want to stop anywhere else because they had no guns, they had no, only had a couple of swords, you know, um, compasses. And so they sailed from there to the west and sailed through what we now call Vanuatu and Fiji and so on. And he, he wouldn't stop because he figured the locals would eat him. And so they sailed all the way to Australia without stopping. That was about 24 days, I think. And then they stopped there uh, uh, for another three days and two nights on an island called Restoration Island. And that saved them because they were able to recuperate. They were, some of them were nearly dead then, but they, they picked themselves up, ate a bit of food off that island, and then carried on straight away. So that's why they went such a long distance without stopping. I read the, the Bly story, but I haven't... I was just trying to understand your particular voyage that, you know, why wouldn't you want to stop at a place on the way? Well, basically because we were replicating what Bly went through. We, what actually happened in reality was that when we left the island of Tafua, the, about uh, oh, three nights later, we had a bad knockdown and damaged a bit of gear. So we actually had to stop. We stopped in Fiji on a little island. We snuck in because we didn't notify customers. We couldn't, you know, we were in this little wooden boat. We, we camped on an island for uh, two days just to repair everything and get everything sorted before we took off again. And then we didn't stop again at all until we got to the same island as Bly called Restoration Island, which is just inside the Barrier Reef. So, um, you know, we were doing it exactly the same as Bly. You know, that was the whole idea to get close to 
the experience that he's, he and his men went through. And uh, it was it was tough, but it was good fun. You know, we, we ended up filling the boat. We, we got knocked down about four times during the voyage when the boat fills with water. And so then it's a race to get more water out before more water comes in. Uh, we did have modern safety equipment and we had a full risk minimisation program on the on the adventure, but nonetheless it was it was pretty epic. It was it was great fun. What would you call a risk minimisation program? Well, you know, adventure to me is really uh, close and personal. You know, I, I love different adventures and I use a very simple formula, uh, but it comes down to planning, preparation, and execution. I, I was just trying to figure out how that worked with the the actual Bly replication voyage? Okay, well there's a few things. Obviously we have all the good safety gear. We, we uh, make sure the boat's as safe as we can make it, you know, unsinkable and things like that. And, uh, you know, we put handrails on the bottom of the boat so if it's upside down we can hang on. Uh, we make sure all the critical components are tied into the boat. Uh, you do what you can, you know, we did the same as Bly, you know, putting lee cloths up to stop the water coming in. Uh, and then we do a, in the planning stage, we do a, a, a training program. We write up a full training program, which lasted for a month with the crew. We had a month together and we went sailing. We tipped the boat upside down. We looked at all the contingencies of what might happen. We started, I starved the crew and uh, some of them didn't make it. They pulled out before the, the trip started because they couldn't cope with the idea of, you know, very virtually no food and exercise. So they were going hyperglycemic, so you, you weed out all the problems of that in your preparation phase, which is planned during the planning stage, you see, so you, you make sure you've got all the right things in place to make sure there's the least amount of risk of something going wrong, even developing a crisis management plan, uh, which details everything on paper, we send that to every rescue coordination centre in our area, like in Canberra and in New Zealand and Fiji, so that if we are in trouble, they've already got the data, they're already following what's going on. We had a satellite tracking system, so it's all part of the preparation. And there's an interesting thing, and this was this is might be of interest to some people. Um, what happened was um, about five months after the expedition was finished, okay, I returned to Tonga and a friend lent me his Nordhaven 72, you know, beautiful seven million dollar boat. And, we were back there ready to start uh, diving and it was a beautiful boat, it had a skipper and crew and stuff and, and we went to the same beach that we left to start the bounty boat journey and because I was now surrounded in luxury and all my cons and everything, I looked across at that beach and thought, crikey, if I saw four guys in a little bounty boat like we did that only had like about a bit over a foot of freeboard when we were all loaded up and they said to me they were going to sail that boat all the way to Kapang, 4,000 miles away, I would have looked at them and simply said, you guys are going to die, right? But in reality, when we set off from that beach, after going through the planning and preparation, we were excited, not, not scared, not apprehensive or anything, because we knew we could do it. And that's all part of how adventures work. From the outside, people think they look risky and dangerous, but if you're sensible and you do good risk minimization and good planning and preparation, they're not as bad as they look for the people on the other side. I mean, it still has an element of risk and that's why we do it. That's what the attraction is, but it's not as bad as it looks. Okay, give me an idea of what happened on the Shackleton replica voyage. 
Discovery Channel, I think it was, and all the rest of it. I was actually part of that, but, but unfortunately they ran out of money at the time and uh, couldn't keep up with my program, and I was getting too busy, so I, I, I had to uh, withdraw from that. And they managed to do it about 18 months later. So I've never done the Shackleton trip. That one's, um, you know, I figured the Bly one was tough enough. Okay, it sounds like it was tough enough. But Tim Jarvis did do that in the end. And his yeah, team. that's right. They did an epic adventure. And some of your uh, your listeners may have seen that. You know, it's uh, it was the most recent Shackleton reenactment. There's been quite a few of them, and uh, it was pretty cool. Where are you from originally? Well, okay, I was born in Adelaide, in South Australia, and uh, I, I uh, sailed away from, from there in about 1973, and I've never really returned. I sailed away with my first little boat that I launched, and. Uh, been sort of out of there, so now I, I technically I, I have a house in Hobart. Uh, we have an apartment here in China, so we live in uh, a few different spots, usually on our boat. But now that we have the island, that's technically going to be home. I mean, uh, finally, uh, when anyone asks me where do you live, I'll finally be able to say, well, we live on the, the island of the Muka Iki in the Hapai group of Tonga. That's home. So um, we're really looking forward to it. It's like a dream come true. Okay, it sounds like you've done some really amazing things and some very daring things. And have the, any of them gotten as much attention as the announcement of the 50th anniversary Golden Globe race? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, the BAC Challenge was good and the Bounty Boat, we got lots of press, but basically the Golden Globe race has, it went viral when we first announced it online. You know, it basically got picked up by every media outlet. And the way that works is that I work with a friend of mine called Barry Pinkle, who's Mr. Around the World Race, basically. He's uh, been involved with every Around the World Race, on media and his journalists, all sorts of things. Anyway, uh, when we send a press release out, it goes out to about 2,300 outlets around the world. And we can monitor who opens the press release and whether they open the attachments, okay? And Barry was absolutely shocked because he'd never seen anything like it before at all. The response rate was three times bigger than the biggest story he'd ever had before on anything, right? There is this background sort of uh, feeling with sailors around the world and journalists and everyone that's been involved with anything to do with sailing and yachting. First of all, they understand and they know who Robert Knox Johnson is and they understand the story of the Golden Globe race. It's been talked about and written about, you know, the whole Donald Crowhurst sort of uh, uh, fable and, um, you know, Joshua, uh, you know, Bernard Matessier and all of his sort of philosophies. And there's so many characters that came from that era uh, in the beginning of the sport. And it's so aligned with basic adventure and, and you know, man against the elements and so on which is so hard to find these days. You, you know, technology has taken over everything. And so it was back to basics. And I think what happened was, um, you know, when we announced the race as a retro race with technology going back to the 60s, in little affordable boats that are really solid and strong, so many people have been able to relate to the two issues. One is it's the anniversary of the original Gold Globe, and two, it's... It's a recreation back to the basics of what a lot of people are literally longing for. You know, they don't, there's nothing wrong with technology and the Bendy and the Volvo are fantastic and spectacular. I love them. But, you know, where do we fit? Where's, where's the 
world going. You know, sometimes the world's a crazy place, and I think people can relate to the Golden Globe. Tell us what the entrance requirements are for the Golden Globe. What what kind of boat do you have to have? Okay, it's got to be between 32 to 36 feet long. has to have a long keel with the rudder attached to the trailing edge of the keel. Um, it has to be minimum displacement of 6,200 kilos. And it has to be a fiberglass production boat designed before 1988 and with at least 20 boats built from female moulds. And the theory behind that is that we know that they will all be solid and strong. Um, we know that they're uh, able to carry the weights and they'll all move at about the same speed through the Southern Ocean. And they're all affordable. And it's also a recognition of the type of boat that Sue Haley was and recognising Robert Knox Johnson's achievement in that race. So I, you know, having competed in the VOC Challenge in 1990, um, I spent something like about three quarters of a million dollars to do that race, building the boat, took me eight years to build the boat, put the campaign together. And ever since then, it was a, it was a race that I did, it was four lengths, there were stopovers. I also was very involved with Jessica Watson, you know, getting her underway and her trip around the world. And when she did that, I was just drooling half the time, thinking, wow, I really want to go and do another round the world something. But there was nothing you could do, you know. Like, I didn't want to build another race boat and waste truckloads of money. And, and when Jimmy Cornell came up with his race around the world, you know, which was a production boat race, I followed that. There's a lot of interest, and I, I literally, I bought a boat to do that. I was going to put an all-women crew in it. <laughs> Could you tell me about Jimmy Cornell's race? Because I'm not aware of it. I just interviewed his daughter, Doinya. Yeah, okay. Well, I, was, I, I sort of was lucky enough to spend some time with Jimmy a few years ago. And obviously, uh, like-minded spirits, you know, an amazing guy. So I follow what he's up to. And about four years ago, I think it was, uh, uh, maybe four years ago, he announced a production boat race around the world with various stopovers, I think there were 12 legs, and you could enter any sort of production boat you wanted, uh, any, you know, as long as it was a production boat. And for 18 months or so, it was going really well. He had a lot of interest, he had about 100, or quite a, a lot of entries. But then what happened was he decided to cancel that race, basically because there was too many different types of boats, and that creates problems. And so, accepting all the other ideas I had about doing something with the Golden Globe and everything, I, I saw pretty quickly that if we want to do it, you want to make sure it's one group of boats that are very similar. So that's why, you know, there's a few reasons I've chosen a small group of boats that are very similar, because then anyone has the chance of winning, right? Um, and the reason it's retro and the way we've designed the, the, uh, the rules of the race is that it doesn't matter if you've got a million dollar sponsor or whether you're out selling scrap metal to raise the money to buy a cheap little production boat and refit it using all your own time and your total budget might only be $80,000, you can still enter this race and you can still have a chance of winning it, you see, and that's another big issue uh, that I wanted to make very clear to the sailing fraternity. I would say I have a boat that's a 31-foot island packet, and it does not qualify because it's 31 feet. And I think it would not qualify because it's a six. It's not. It's not slight. It's not a heavy enough. Maybe 11,000 pounds. I don't think in kilos, but I think in kilos that might be 
Okay, 2018. Yes, that's right. And those entrants are already, they're already filled, is that right? Uh, yeah, we, we've had a phenomenal amount of interest. Uh, we've now got a full entry book and we've got eight people on the wait list. So they're paid up on the wait list. You know, but yeah, we've had a massive amount of interest in doing the race. And we've got all types of entrants. We've got some of the biggest names in the sport, some of the real gurus. We've got a, a whole group of absolutely nobodies that have uh, just, you know, some of them are still learning to sail. And then we've got a middle-of-the-range group that are uh, good sailors, uh, cruising guys, uh, only one woman, unfortunately, Susie. Uh, um, I would have hoped there would be more women there, but, um, but that's it, you know. So, uh, yeah, we've, we've fully subscribed, and it's quite interesting to see the, the characters. It's a very colourful group. How many entrants do you have? Well, this gets a bit tricky, but basically, at the moment, we have uh, 27 entrants. We only opened 25 applications. We've held five special invitations that we can give to anyone at any time, and we've currently issued two of those special invitations. So we have three special invitations still left to offer, and we have eight people paid up on the wait list. Uh, we will only have 30 entrants at the start line. We've restricted the fleet to 30 boats. So uh, basically we are definitely full at the moment. All right, so they're going to go around the Cape of Good Hope, Cape of Gullis, and then go around the Southern Ocean and then Cape Horn and then back to England. Is that the route? That's, yeah, that's it. It's an east-about race, so they leave Falmouth uh, in the uh, south-western uh, tip of England, and uh, they'll set sail on June the 16th, 2018, and the majority of them will take about nine months. So the world's never seen anything like it, not even from the first race. These are interesting little boats with absolutely no technology. They can't use GPS, no electronics, uh, no electric autopilots, only wind vanes, uh, um, and uh, it's going to be a real challenge. It'll be very interesting to see how many can actually get around. That's still a big question because if you look at the history of most of the small boats that have sailed solo non-stop around the world, at some time they've had to use electric autopilots to keep control of their boats besides wind vanes. And these guys and girls have got no electronics at all, no electric autopilots, just wind vanes. So it's going to be a big test. One other thing I worry about is, did, did anyone, was anyone really upset about the no electronic navigation, or was that not a big issue for a lot of people? No, quite, quite the reverse. Uh, I could say pretty universally, everyone was incredibly excited about the prospect of going around and using a sextant and uh, uh, having no computers on board and... Uh, uh, you know, enjoying the isolation to a degree and, and um, you know, facing the challenges naturally, going back to basics. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's a certain purity to that. 
and it's something that's that's uh, very missing in today's society. So, so we have a massive amount of interest on the retro nature of the event. Okay, so I just interviewed someone from the crew of Hokulia, uh, which is a traditional Polynesian voyaging canoe. And yeah, so they uh, very well. Yeah, they use uh, traditional Polynesian navigation techniques. Nevertheless, they also put position updates on Facebook on a regular basis. So somebody does have some sort of electronic, even if they're not navigating with it, somebody is keeping kind of the public informed by that. And I'm just wondering if you're going to kind of miss out on promoting the race by having the entrants that don't that don't have any communications. Yeah, no, quite, quite the reverse. What happens is uh, there's a balancing act here. So if you can imagine this, each of the boats will have a satellite tracking device on it that they can't see. Okay. But that goes to the race website, and that's updated every couple of hours. So you'll be able to track all the boats. Secondly, for safety reasons, um, and this is part of the risk minimisation of the event, they will have a, a small satellite texting unit. It allows them to send short burst text messages of up to 100 characters, and they will be coming off each of the boats twice a day. Then, secondly, we will have satellite phones on board the boat, okay, which are, are turned on. Uh, when we request them, we can send a text message to the boat and say, turn your satellite phone on. And uh, when they turn their phone on, we can talk to them on the satellite phone. They can't use that satellite phone to ring out and talk to anyone else. They don't know the number, no one can ring them. Uh, it's only to us we manage the account. That satellite phone and the texting system is obviously also used for safety purposes. Uh, but if there's something happening on the boat, a, a big story, then uh, we will get that story via satellite phone. They will use that satellite phone once a week to contact race control, and that that uh, conversation will be recorded and put up on the uh, website uh, once a week for every boat as a uh, as a voice file. Okay, so uh, whilst they are personally sailing over the horizon and facing their own challenges, there we still have uh, plenty of information coming off the boats to uh, keep the interest going. There are also, just like in the original race, um, the entrants originally in 68 would call into different spots and try to get films and messages out from the boat. Uh, Matessia uh, uh, on Joshua, he used to use a slingshot. He'd put his messages and film in cartridges and, and shoot them onto the deck of other ships or, or uh, whatever. So we have a film drop point at the Canary Islands, uh, at, the, at uh, Cape Verde, in Hobart and in the Falkland Islands. So all the boats will have to sail past the gate there and we'll obviously be interviewing them with live uh, updates as they're sailing along at those four points as well. So they won't disappear, but it's not going to be like, uh, you know, like uh, the Volvo will next race where it's 24 hours a day live satellite television on each of the boats so you can see them cleaning their teeth and cooking their meals <laughs> and things like that. Okay. You won't get that with the, with the Gold Globe. But you will, you will know where they are, right? So it sounds like yeah, fans will have position yeah. updates and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, there'll be quite good coverage. I mean, we're um, we're expecting uh, to have global interest in 
the race and the biggest proportion of interest will come from non-sailors uh, because you've got to remember this is more than just a, a typical yacht race this is human endeavor and endurance and challenge which is something that now everyone's getting used to so the people that are following sailing races now like the vendi and like the gold uh, like the uh, the volvo race and so on they're mostly sailors um, you know, some of the general public like the spectacle, but it's mostly sailors. What we know will happen with this is there will be a lot of coverage on the general news pages, not just sport and sailing, because this is this is back to the real human challenge and the real human adventure. It's quite different. So, how long do you think the winner will take? Well, it's a bit tricky. Uh, less than eight months, maybe. <laughs> Okay. Um, there's so many variables, it's a bit, bit hard to say, but, but, but you might see the first boats home in month eight. If you were going to guess, how many do you think would finish? Oh, wow, no one has ever asked me that point. Um, uh, I would probably think that we should be uh, the other side of 20. Oh, that's a very high number. Don't you think that's a high number? Sorry. If you have 30 entrants, is that right? You have 30 entrants? Well, you know, the quality, but I'm reasonably confident some of those that currently have entries might not even make the start line. There's, you know, I've been through this before myself. You know, I, I didn't make the 1986 BOC Challenge because mm -hmm. I just had a half-built boat. So some of the current entries won't get there, but I, and then we've got people on the wake list, but I think we're probably... At the end, it's hard to get all that happening. I think we'll probably get about 28 starters mm -hmm. that will be actually crossing the line. And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe six, seven or eight of those don't get to the finish. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, and it's a long way around. Uh, yeah, so that's what I was thinking. I was thinking on a good year for the, maybe the Vendee, they might have an 80% finisher rate. Oh, no, no, no. On a yeah. good year, on a good year they can, but on a bad year, it's not much more than 60%, you know. Or 40% on a bad year. Who knows? I mean, I love the Vendi. I mean, it's a fantastic event, you know, I watch it all the time. <laughs> but but this is a different animal. I mean, these boats, uh, whilst the, the, the crews will be very competent, the boats will be very well prepared and, and uh, everything's going in their favour, things go wrong, you know. They... It's a long way round, so we just got to wait and see. But I'd certainly be happy, uh, and I think that would be we should be seeing the other side of twenty entrants finish the race. Really? I mean, they're they're going to spend, as you say, eight months or at least six months in the Southern Ocean, right? So they're going to spend longer than than the Vendee racers, and they're going to be uh, less experienced, you know.
than doing the Volvo race. Totally agree. I mean, how many people vi yeah. finished the Golden Globe? Yeah, well, exactly. So One person, so right? <laughs> you're doing? Well, you know, I mean, it, it started because of my passion to do the race. I started the race because I wanted to enter, but now I'm not. But that's, we, I just, my adventure now is, is running the race. But really, adventure is what it's all about. And to me, it's the single most important thing. If, if people support adventure in any form at all, it just can make a better world, you know. And my interpretation of adventure, people say to me, what's adventure? It's very simple. Any activity with an unknown outcome is an adventure. So if you've never ridden a bike before in your life, get on it and give it a try. That's an adventure. And so adventure has the chance to make the world a better place, you know, and it doesn't matter what you do, whether it's paddling a canoe for the first time or going sailing, anything at all that's got an unknown outcome, give it a go. It's a good thing. Well, thank you, Don, and thank you for inspiring so many people. And uh, I... I think we've only scratched the surface of the great things that you've done already, and hopefully we'll speak further as uh, we get closer to race time. Yeah, I'd love to. Good luck, and thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Okay, see you later. So, that was Don McIntyre of McIntyre Adventures, the organizer and founder of the 2018 Golden Globe 50th anniversary race and uh, I'm sure we're going to be hearing more about that race as the months and years progress. Next week we're going to have Dominic Love, uh, who sailed with his wife and dog and also his baby son in a 46-foot sailboat around the Bahamas and Western Caribbean and hear his uh, wonderful stories. Dominic just celebrated a, his 30th birthday recently, so uh, he's a young guy and it's all, I always like to talk to uh, the kind of younger cruisers, even though they're rarer, who got out there early uh, to go on the big sailing adventure. He's got a wonderful YouTube channel, uh, which I'm sure many of you have already watched, and that's uh, SVC Wolf is his YouTube channel. 
thanks for listening to the podcast. Tell your friends about the podcast. Unfortunately, we pay a lot of money to host our website, host the podcast, which is in addition to the website because it takes up so much bandwidth. I mentioned I pay a lot in gas to run the generator last week and this week too. It it's a it's a labor of love, but it's also not a free labor, and uh, I am so grateful for the people who have pledged on Patreon. But we're still not halfway there toward our goal of twenty dollars per episode, uh, so it's not coming so much out of pocket uh, for me to pay for the basics of hosting the podcast. Of course, if we hit that $20 per episode goal on Patreon.com, then slash slowboat sailing, then uh, I'll give away uh, my book, Slowboat to the Bahamas, for free to everyone in the world to celebrate. Uh, but that may be some time, depending on how we get support from listeners like you. Pledging on Patreon is a great value. It's not just a gift that you get a lot of extra content. Everyone gets uh, my book, How to Sail Around the World, part-time in audiobook form. That's going for $9.99 on iTunes. Uh, But you can have it for free if you pledge on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. I'm making both Slobo to the Bahamas and How to Sail Around the World part-time uh, on sale uh, this week uh, for $0.99 cents for How to Sail Around the World part-time and $4.99 for Slobo to the Bahamas. So check them out uh, while they're on sale in Kindle ebook form on Amazon.com and for similar prices on all Amazon's country sites throughout the world. The bonus episode uh, will include uh, new chapters of Slowboat to the Bahamas audiobook form, which is not available in any stores or online anywhere except on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. There are numerous bonus episodes, starting with episode 10, uh, with the bonus episode of SV Delos. Uh, and if you pledge just $1, you're entitled to all those bonus episodes on the patron-only site of patreon.com uh, slash slowboatsailing. So bye for now. Uh, me, Daily, Stevie... Uh, wish you well. Have fun on the water. We're excited that the podcast recording has come to an end, so now I can turn on the air conditioner once more. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.